I think that it's an odd inflection point with our country right now where where you have a lot of people like the redneck Scots that you talk about in your special, who's your neighbor, who who would say, if we were talking to them about politics or whatever it is, they go, I'm not racist, I'm friends with Mo. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? But then, but then what you'd say is, does does that guy believe in systemic racism? Maybe not. Yeah. And so then it's like, how do you teach or try to convince redneck Scott that systemic racism is something that is everywhere in our country and needs to be uh, addressed? Yeah, I avoided all those conversations for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to a new episode of Working It Out. So glad you're joining us here. Uh, we are well into our our 60s of episodes at this point. This is wild. Can't believe it. Uh, we have an exciting guest today. Um, we have exciting announcements about the tour. I just finished up in Berkeley at the Berkeley Repertory Theater. The new show, The Old Man in the Pool, is uh, better than ever. It is a fascinating experience of going between the podcasts and live shows and outdoor shows and virtual shows and like all this stuff. But the show is in great shape. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be in Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, Charlotte, Asheville, Durham, Indianapolis, Dallas, Chicago for a whole run of shows. I'm doing like four weeks there at the Steppenwolf, which is literally like a dream come true. Los Angeles, London for two shows. And then uh, this is a new one, Paris and Iceland. I've never done shows in Paris and Iceland. We'll see. We'll see if you show up. <laughs> Tell your friends and enemies. Uh, today on the show, we have Mo Ammer. Uh, Mo is uh, someone I've known for a few years uh, from the club circuit. He's super, super funny and just sweet person. I actually, I think he's most well known for his uh, his Netflix special a few years ago called Mo Ammer, The Vagabond, where he talks a lot about how he grew up in Palestine and he's got a really interesting personal story. Moved to, His family moved to Texas grew up in Houston, uh, which is actually the title of his new special that you can watch right now, which is called Muhammad in Texas. You can also see him um, on Rami Youssef's Hulu show, Rami. He's in two seasons of that. Um, he will also appear in the upcoming superhero film, Black Adam, alongside The Rock. Um, we have a, a great conversation. I, I love I love talking to Mo. I love his comedy, and uh, I think you will too. Enjoy my conversation with the great Mo Ammer. First of all, Mo, way to go! Great special. Thank you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> how long have we, How long have we been friends? I'm gonna guess. Four years? That sounds about years? right. About four or five yeah. years. Sounds about right. Maybe more. I don't know. Yeah. We were somebody I feel it's, like I've uh, known for a long time. It's amazing. You too. You too. You're you're a warm you're a warm soul, and I feel like we we we're I feel like you're one of those friends where we've probably talked for thirty hours, but it feels like we've talked for for five hundred hours. <laughs> sounds right. That feels you know what like, I mean? Yeah, absolutely feels that way too i was so happy to hear from you i was like let's go you have this great new special muhammad in texas on netflix and and in the trailer and this really hooked me on the on the trailer i would have watched it already but i was like you have this thing about you know you grew up in houston you're from palestine but you 
moved to Houston when you're young and 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 you make this point about how you you know like you get along with a lot of people who don't you don't think would people wouldn't think would like Muhammad's right exactly you know <laughs> no it was it was really frustrating honestly and that and that part of it was actually a bit was a longer bit um and and I and John Stewart came to the show and in, in um at the cellar and watch the hour. I was like, I really need, I would really love your notes if you could pop in and give me some notes. And he was so gracious. He came in and gave me uh, some, some, some great things to think about. And, and that bit was the one that was kind of stewing in my head. And then middle of me about to do the bit in the, in this, in the, in the special, I shifted gears in that moment. I'm like, no, this is not what it is. Cause he was just giving me a note about connective tissue overall connective yeah. tissue for the set. And I was like, you're 100% yeah. right. And right in the middle of it, I mean, right as I started it, I just shifted gears. I'm like, it's not this, it's that. And I and I changed it right as we're filming. And I was- Real? Yeah. Wait, you, you changed it in the filming, yeah. in the live performance you were filming? Yeah, yeah. Because in my head, it was a completely different set. And Azhar Osman, who's was, who's was a producer on the show, I had him follow me and just like take notes for me and help me out. Uh, we had it. He was like, "Bro, what a great shift! Like, it was an amazing, like, complete shift of the situation." I'm like, "That's the, that's the, that's what was missing for the whole special." And, you know, it takes like I don't know hundreds of sets, and then all of a sudden you get it while you're filming. I mean, go for yeah. And then I just got it right the second time. I was like, "Look, I just need to do it again for the second show, and I think this is where it needs to be because the bit was about how overly prepared he is, and he is generous with what he does with what he does, but it was never." made clear in the bit so i was like damn yeah. i was like forget the bit you know i was like forget the whole jokes part of it like the the meat of it just forget all that and just talk about our relationship is more significant than me trying to get laughs and just do the do the jokes i'm like you know what this is where it belongs and it just happened like in the middle of the set it was awesome i was like Phew. i think that's it wait so like so the whole thing you go like you go like you know i grew up in houston and like you know, I I know red. You know, this guy is like there's a redneck named Scott. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like I got a generator. You know, it's like and it's like I'll give you Mo Mohammed. I'll give you a generator. Yeah. Whatever it is, he's like, yeah, that wasn't he's the like, bit. Yeah. Oh, that wasn't the bit. No, you're telling me it was it was something previously. You like li- literally like improvise that on in the special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did. It was it was meant to be how he's overly prepared and he's constantly warning us and we suck at it. Like all the other yeah. neighbors in the cul-de-sac just don't listen to him. And he's like, it's coming. Yeah. I better be prepared. And this is real. This happened a couple of times with hurricanes where he's the only one with lights. And all of us don't yes. have lights. So we all just hang out at his place. And he, and I and before it was just like, oh, the driveway is his stage. When the eye of the storm is passing, he's all lit up. And, and, and the driveway is his stage. And he's <laughs> out there smoking a cigarette. Like, I told you, <laughs> dumb son bitch. I told you. <laughs> that was the bit. Yeah. So I took it away. I was like, no, it's about how he's there for me and all this like the fragmented America, like this whole idea of Muhammad's living in Texas is so absurd and they can't get along when truthfully it's one of the best relationships I have in my cul-de-sac. Like it's it's like really That's warm and loving. They 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 sent me pictures after I dropped the special of them Aww. together. It's just sweet, you know, because I've moved out recently from that neighborhood. Yeah. But he's my guy. Like for 15 years, that was that was my guy. I love them. That's a hard thing I have explaining to people 
who say to me like, oh, you travel to every state in the country and is in the, in the middle of the country. Is it, is it, you know, or crowd's not as good or whatever. I'm like, no, no, the middle of the country is amazing. I mean, Texas is amazing. All these places, the people are great. I think that there's a stratification that happens that you talk about in your special where people pick a team. Yeah. But it also but it doesn't mean that they're all one team or all another team or that given the choice to be kind or not be kind that they wouldn't be kind just because they're on that one team. Yeah, absolutely. And if they did pick teams in the moment of cuz your neighbors always it's about neighborliness, right? It's about yeah, being aware of who your neighbors are and being there for them. And I've had neighbors who've had emergencies and we step up. If they were on a team, if they never they could have not shared that with me, right? They yeah. might have been on a team and they were nice when we, <laughs> by the way, we hang probably, out. They probably were, they probably were by <laughs> yeah. the way, just but, to be clear. But like over time, it just that whatever ice was there, or whatever reasons, whatever projections they had upon what a Muhammad would be like, um, it, it just melted away pretty quickly. And constantly my my doorbell would ring or, you know what I mean? They would come in, check yeah. out with their kids. Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or cheerleading or whatever you're supporting at yeah. that time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, just, just do the, yeah, just here's the check. Do the, you know, we're always there for each other. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think it did a lot of good more than harm. That's for sure. And I think that's more common. It's a, it is for sure. I know it is a lot more common than than people think. And it's just this idea of what it looks like. It looks better for that for us to be divided versus when we're actually galvanized. We're there for each other, specifically when, you know, a hurricane comes through and you see the neighbors all come out helping each other. They don't care. They don't look about what color or background you are. I know it sounds cheesy or whatever, but it's true. I mean, it's like in these moments, they people step up and, and we're there for each other. At least that's what my neighborhood is like. I think that it's an odd inflection point with our country right now where where you have a lot of people like the redneck Scots that you talk about in your special, who's your neighbor, who who would say, if we were talking to them about politics or whatever it is, they go, I'm not racist, I'm friends with Mo. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? But then, but then what you'd say is, does, does that guy believe in systemic racism? Maybe not. Yeah. And so then it's like, how do you teach or try to convince Redneck Scott that systemic racism is something that is everywhere in our country and needs to be uh, addressed? Yeah, I avoided all those conversations for sure. <laughs> I, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm putting gonna, you in charge. Yeah, I'm not gonna walk up to Scott as he's like, you know, barbecuing and be like, look, we to have a real serious talk about systemic racism. Like, that's not what's popping off. I think it's about just the relationships and the and, and just continuing to grow together is where it's at. I think everything yeah. else is just, you know, I think it's just engineered in a particular way where. They have to think that way. If somebody only watches Fox News their whole life, I would hate me too. Sure. You know, like I don't blame sure. them. You know, I toured the South. Yeah. I started comedy in the mid-90s as a 14-year-old kid. And I started touring in the late 90s, early 2000s, pre-9-11. And I had a, you know, it was a great time. they never seen anybody like me. And then post-9-11, it was a completely different situation, obviously. Yeah. But still the yeah. same result. They still were glad. They still loved me. They still sat out with me afterwards it was it was you know it wasn't like very different from what it was before 9-11 obviously there was a lot of um 
to get over in the first few minutes, but you know, it made me a stronger comedian for it, and I and I like to think that it made some kind of difference too. You have this great joke about how after nine eleven you thought your career was over, and and your brother goes to you, you know. You know, Mo, like your career's over. Like no one's gonna want to hear a guy named Muhammad telling jokes on stage. <laughs> and you go, uh, Omar, you're a pilot. <laughs> That's a hundred percent true story, by the way. <laughs> That's absurd. <laughs> I came back from like the worst open mic. I was like 19. It was like the worst open mic ever. I was like, oh shit, I'm exhausted. And I walk in and my brother just stares me down. And I was like, bro, you're a pilot. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you were in the Marine Corps. They're about to call you up, buddy. You're going to Iraq. Like, yeah. it's going to happen. He was like, nah, they don't, what do they want with me? I was like, I've been out of the Marines two years. I'm like, bro, you speak fluent Arabic. You know all the dialects. Yeah. You have like two bachelor's degrees at this point. You're you're gonna get the call. I don't want you to get the call. But you're talking about me. It's yeah. like focus on yourself. Sure enough, he yeah. got a letter a week later. I was like, I told you, buddy. <laughs> told you. Thankfully, he's okay and came back. And shoot. Oh man. Yeah, that took a dark turn. I think it's like an interesting cultural shift that's happened because you were like, you thought your career was going to end in 2001, you know, uh, after 9/11, and then of course it went the other way. It yeah. Skyrocketed. You know, you're you're starring in huge movies with The Rock. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're like, you, you you know, you shot multiple comedy specials for Netflix. I mean, you're you're blowing up. And it's like, what, what do you think happened in culture? And where do you see it going? Well, this is something that I saw from an early age. You know, I noticed that there was Arab culture, Middle Eastern culture starting to creep into the West and it's just natural, right? Whenever you invade a country, you start exporting its goods, right? It just happens. <laughs> right. That's why I do that right. bit. In, that's why I do that bit in my special, talking about you know walking around during World War II era with sushi, offering random American sushi. They wouldn't know what that is. They'd be like, "What the hell is that?" So it's just now it's the thing, right? Like if you don't eat sushi, you're like an asshole if you don't like sushi. And it's yeah. and it's just something that I saw a long time ago. Like, oh, it's just natural. That export's going to start coming here. And and also there's the curiosity of people. Um, what is this? What is that? You know, the, the yeah. military men that are, you know, now stationed abroad. Because there wasn't any military bases pre-1990 in the Middle yeah. Eastern region where you had mil- U.S. military bases for, throughout the rest of the world. Throughout Europe still to this day, there's over 800, 900 military bases worldwide with the exception of the Middle East. So what Saddam Hussein did uh, entering into Kuwait in the Gulf War – Therefore, had American soldiers now in Bahrain, in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in uh, in Kuwait, in Iraq, uh, and throughout other countries. I believe maybe Syria at this point. I'm not sure about Syria, but you know, therefore, it's just going to be a natural progression, right? Where that people's curiosity and also the soldiers bringing things back, and it's just about a matter of time where things catch up. And I feel like it's time. People really want to know about it and are very curious about it, but want to know from the actual source. They don't want to hear it through the news. They don't want to hear it through yeah. non-Arab people. I think it's I think it's you know important for that. And I always saw that. And I and I was just patient enough just to wait, wait, wait. And whenever the time comes to cash in on it, like as far as like my my saving, I call everything I write is in my savings account. So whether it be a, whether it be a, a TV show, that's what I mean by cash. Oh, that's in. beautiful. Uh, you know, and I've you know like the opening. I filmed. I just finished filming my series for Netflix, a scripted series. Yeah, I just wrapped a week ago, 
and the opening to that series I wrote seven years ago, you know, the flashback. Wow. And that was the only thing that wasn't rewritten throughout the whole season wow. because it was so, wow. it was so like balanced and, and smart and just the way it was like to shape out the whole story. It was so important, but like that. So now I'm just reaching into this, to this really deep well that I knew that eventually I was going to cash in on. I mean, artistically cash in on monetarily. It's great. I would love to, I want to make money, of course, but it's like, for me, it's like accomplishing that feat was a huge, wow, it's in the can, we're editing it, they're talking about a Palestinian family living in Houston. It's the first ever narrative TV show to ever be filmed in Houston. So it's, wow. yeah, it's very exciting, you know. You know, there's a lot of creatives who listen to this show, and and I always try to point out to creatives who, who maybe are trying to work professionally, but aren't yet that 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 these projects that that we all work on they take years they take years and years and years when i did sleepwalk with me i worked on it for like seven or eight years before it was a, a show off broadway um refining it refining it one of my favorite movies of all time is squid and the whale by noah Baumbach, and mm. it's like i think he was working on that for like nine years before yeah. it was made and and what you're talking about is like years and years of things you're you're describing as your savings account, which I love. I feel like I'm going to steal that please. just casually. Yeah, please. It's so good. It's such a good way of thinking about it for all creatives, I think, which is like everything we're experiencing, whether it's hardship, whether it's like we're writing something that's not quite there yet or we don't have access to making it, um, it's all in your savings account. Exactly. No, I've thought about that for a long time, and I've, and I've been really fortunate to have great mentors in my life that taught me that early on. Um that so I, I took that really personally and I was just like, oh okay, it's just part of my overall autistic strategy long term. It's like whenever it starts happening, it's like they're gonna ask you, what do you got? Oh, well shit, what do you want? <laughs> it's like it's like it's like that for me. I mean honestly, I, I've got several movies of you know that I've been working on and playing with, uh, you know, that eventually that I wanna make and I know that I'm gonna get to make it. It's gonna happen. So it's just like it's just about persistence and waiting I mean, what it mean, like Inception, it took Nolan like 10 years. He wrote that 10 years before he did it, like something like that. You know, there's a lot of stories like this. Squid Game, the guy wrote it 10 years ago, you know. I think it helps you, you know. I think it actually, the more time you take with it, some people get really impatient and just, I got to put it out now. And I think just really being patient with it and focusing on punching above your weight class is, is, is really uh, a worthy trek, you know. You... Uh it's a sad thing you talk about in your special, but uh, you got divorced during the pandemic. And, uh, or I shouldn't say it's sad, it's challenging. It's a challenging life uh, event. Um, what is your turnaround typically on <laughs> tragedy becoming comedy on stage? Like what, what kind of a bereavement period before you throw it on stage? I'm pretty much immediately... I mean, it immediately, <laughs> yeah, got, it's what I put out. What I actually put out is like, you know, I've been really I'm setting it up basically for the next special to talk about it with the with the one liner just to kind of discuss how sad I felt about it. But I, yeah, it's really therapeutic for me. I need to take it up on stage almost immediately. And uh, it's just one of those things that I, I really have to do it ASAP and it helps me out. Uh, but I also I'm really thoughtful, too, about what I say about her, because we were married for quite some time, so I, I don't have any ill feelings towards her whatsoever. It's just a thing that happened in the middle of a pandemic, you know? So I'm just collecting, but I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot 
fucking therapy, you know? A lot of times people ask me, like, where's the line between what's therapy and what's and, and what's uh, entertainment? And I think, it, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's, it's if you can make people laugh with, with what happened to you, then it's uh, entertainment. And if they're not laughing and they're not feeling anything, then, then it's not really meant for the stage. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes them, the audience being uncomfortable is my therapy, too. You know, sometimes for them to just be like cringe with me, like, oh, I feel you on that. We came here to laugh. I'm like, yeah, it's coming. Just just shut up and feel it for a second. And I think that's also part of it as well for me. It's like being, you know, it's, it's like really crucial for comedians to be okay with silence. I think a lot of, uh, especially young comedians, just rush through joke to joke thinking it's just how many laughs I can get per minute is really what it's about. And it's like, that's easy it's just sitting in it is is where it's at for me. And I found that to be the the best writing tool. Cause I don't really write anything. I just take everything on stage. Just kind of I and that's how I, I work. Um I'm just too ADHD maybe. I don't know. Never been officially diagnosed, but I just I get bored and I just want to take it on stage and I'm really inspired by the audience's reaction. That's how I get that's how I write is to hear their reaction. Yeah. I'm inspired by a line that otherwise I would have never thought of if I was just sitting in front of a computer. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, I do enjoy that too. And yeah, sometimes it's cringy. <laughs> sometimes it's like, oh, it's a little too honest. And that's something that Chappelle taught me. He goes, man, be so honest that it's hard to make eye contact with you. And um, and that's and that's something that I, I've been working on. And I think that takes time specifically about the subjects that I'm trying to bring up on stage or whatever I'm feeling. It's been really hard for me, and I think that I've had a breakthrough over the last year, two years. Wow. Mm. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Be so honest that it's difficult to make eye contact with you. Yeah, it's like, whew. I always learn and relearn that. Yeah, same, same. And I, and I never really experienced it until I shot the series. I was doing a scene that was really raw, you know, and is based off of, most of it is based on my life obviously fictionalized and, and, you know, for the story, but one particular scene was so just honest. And I remember walking off and everybody just kind of like having a hard time looking at me. Yeah. And I didn't get it until my drive home. I was like, oh my God, was it terrible? You know, was it, was yeah. that a bad take? Was it just not a good scene? And then I realized, I started getting messages from everyone, like how profound everybody you know, they were, everybody really felt it in a big way. And so I was like, oh, that's what the thing he was talking about. Oh, it was just like, it was such an honest scene that everybody else struggled on how to act after. You know, it was just one of those, like, what do we do? Like, that's a lot. That's pretty cool. You know, it was just one of those things. Yeah, sometimes it's sometimes I'll I'll say something on stage. Like in My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, I have a scene where I, I say, uh, when I first I went on my first date with my now wife, Jen, and and I said, I love you. It was like on our first date. I was like, I love you. And she says, you love me? I go, I mean, you seem cool. You know, I pulled it back and I want to lay it on too strong. And then like, what's so funny is like, you, sometimes I look back and I just go like, what was that? I can't believe I even said that on stage. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> but it's like, that's what we committed to. That's what our job is, is this weird confession thing that in the moment seems like a good idea that even in hindsight I'm like what was I doing <laughs> yeah. telling people that 
That's so funny. Yeah, I've had several of those. I'm trying to remember which one. It's just too many. I've done I've done that pretty often where I just catch myself. Like, did I just do that? I'm sorry, guys. It just happened. Let's keep it going. Yeah, it's weird because I get that people message me sometimes on Instagram and they'll ask, like, you know, like, I'm trying, I'm experimenting with this confessional comedy, that kind of thing. And it's like, what's too much to say? And I'm like, I mean, there is not too much to say. It's just the fee. All of it's too much to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all of it, all of it, and none of it. You know, it's like that's what it is. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little skeptical of that. Like how to f- how that question is framed. Even like confessional comedy. Like what is you just be honest and funny. You just gotta be funny. Sometimes young comedians are just like confessing things with no punchlines. I'm like, bro, this is just. Yes. Fucking awkward, bro. You, just, you have nothing well, just, to hide it. Yeah, that's just, to me. That's just a, that's just a, that's just a setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Of so course, it's, it's it a is. setup with, the, with no with no left turn. You right. Know? And they think you that's. Gotta, I think you. I, I think you got to bring a left turn, or else you're not a comedian. You're just someone talking. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have a beef with that. I'm like, man, I don't know. It just. I think. I think like a lot of comedians are. are I see this happen a lot where they build up bad habits and nobody like teaches them otherwise, where they just like want to stand in one spot and just speak in the same tone throughout the whole. It's like, no, that's not great stand up. Like a few guys have ever pulled that off in a way where they've become legends. They're like two that I could think of. Um, and it's just like great stand-up as being a well-rounded performer, like being able to use all of your voice. I could sit down on a stool and talk for hours too, but I could also move around and bring stories to life. I can, you know what I mean? Like I think a lot of comedians get in their head like, oh, that's, this is, oh, this is hacky or this is that, or this is, it's like, no, to me, all of you sound the same. That's hacky. Like that to me is the same. And what is hacky? Like, it's like, we gotta, we have to like define it within our own community. Like I think hacky is somebody who's doing an actual bit that belongs to somebody else. That's a hack, you know? That to me is that. It's not like, you know, we're all inspired by people that came before us. I mean, anybody says they're not, they're just full of shit. Like I know that I have, you know, top five comedians that I know that I grew up with and I absolutely admire and and look up to in a big way and just like, yeah, of course you're influenced by them. And it takes like your whole career to shed that. Like you have to, you spend your entire lifetime, you know, shedding those influences and becoming your own. So we do this thing on the show called the slow round, and a lot of it's just memories. Like, do you have a memory of a smell from childhood that you think about sometimes? Nescafe. Oh, yeah? Nescafe, my aunts and my grandmother. A few memories that I have of my grandmother. Nescafe, yeah. And sometimes I'll just be walking around, and I'll, I'll just smell Nescafe. Wait, hold on. Nescafe is just the type of coffee? Yeah, but it's like, you know, 
immigrants know what I'm talking about here. It's like these little packets. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's like these little packets of Nescafe, and that's how you just get a bunch of hot water and you drop them in there, and it has like a specific aroma. And <laughs> why, why do immigrants? Why do immigrants know what that is? Because immigrants and, think and that's the best know. coffee. It's like the quick, easiest Nescafe. That's the go-to. It's like packets of like creamer mixed into it and seven pounds of sugar. It's like horrible, but oh, it's but it's like uh, it's a scent that just pops every once in a while. I'll smell it. It'll be like a year or two apart or something, and all of a sudden, yeah, I'm just walking around like just, my grandmother's here. Like yeah. what's up? You know, like that. Uh. Do you have a memory from your life where you you felt like you're an inauthentic version of yourself and like you look back and you sort of cringe? Yeah. Um, right after 9-11, I was Italian for three months, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'd walk right here. I was just like, yeah, I'm, no, I'm Italian. What are you talking about? Yeah, fuck yeah. I hated myself. Because it was so scary, wow. man. It scared the shit out of us. Yeah. It was like... It was it was horrible. I mean, it was comedians, um, lovely comedians that walk up to me, just been in the game a long time. Mo, you're so funny. Kind uh, of hate for you get passed up and stuff like that. Just uh, just change your name, you know? Like no, yeah, 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 no. yeah. And Jewish comedians that love me, that cared for me, that still do. I talk to them occasionally, you know. But it's just like they just were worried about me. They were like, man, you should just change your name, bro. Like. Fuck it, you know. Just you should have changed it to Berbiglia. <laughs> Berbiglia, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a tough time, man. I was definitely Italian for a few months. It didn't feel good. What's the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you that you used? I've been given some really amazing advice by my mentor, Danny Martinez. Shout out to Danny Martinez, who owned the Comedy Showcase in Houston for thirty years. Um, I mean, I think the I think. This is the easy one, lowest hanging fruit. I mentioned it earlier. It could be six months too early, but you can't be six months too late. It's a really yeah. profound one to me. It's like everybody just wants to rush and get there. And he would say, like, fast rise, fast fall. And um, and it's nothing more true than those words to me. And to tell a 17-year-old kid, like, hey, it's going to take you 20 years for overnight success. And yeah. I'll, I'll teach you everything you want to know, but it's going to take you 20 years. If you're in for that, then I'll teach you. Otherwise, don't waste my time. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. The best way I've heard of that same concept described is is the concept of pulling the bow back. The further you pull the bow back, the farther the arrow is going to go. Beautiful. That's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. I like that. I think that's one of the best advice I've received. What's a story that you tell your friends, but you don't really talk about on stage? Oh, man. I just started talking about it, but how I was um, my worst show ever. Yeah. Yeah, my worst show ever. And there's no like good way to tell it. It's awful. It's probably I don't I I I wonder if any other comedian has had a worse one. Um <laughs> I'm sure there's some good ones. I could ones probably out there. go head to, I could probably go head to head with you with, uh, with this. All right. All right. Uh, well, I was doing I did all, you know how you do these college showcases. Yeah. So this is like 2008 maybe and I did um I booked is every like it was, was it like NACA. It was uh, it was it was it wasn't NACA. It was the uh, regional ones. It was the um, okay. So it was like a regional college conference where they book colleges from like the Northeast exactly. or the Midwest. This was or the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, this yeah. was Northeast, and uh, the Penn State yep. schools were the one. If you can get them, there's like 23. I booked all of them. 
I booked every single school. Wow. Yeah. Huge. My college agent was like, dude, you rocked it. You booked every single school that was there. It was 27. I booked them all. It was amazing. Wow. And then I, you know, some of them are nooners, right? Some of them are nooner shows. Yeah. And then you're lunch or lunch shows. I've talked I've, I've literally talked about this on stage, but it's, it's when you're you're literally booked during a college lunch, often in a cafeteria. And the and often the kids don't know there's going to be a show of any kind. Not only did they in this, so I'll tell you one. So it's a commuter campus. It's a big one. It's a huge lunchroom, um, and it's chaotic. The guy who's introducing me is miserable. He's just like uh, um, uh, <laughs> stuttering, saying hello. Like, uh, uh, um, guys, we're gonna have a, a com- comedian now coming on uh, the stage, <laughs> and I'm sitting there like just. Just introduced me already, right? I remember interrupting him and just walking on stage. He's like, Mo, yeah. uh, and he was struggling with my last name, Amber. Amber. I was like, just get off. So I kick him off stage. <laughs> and I was like, let me do my thing. I'm all like cocky. I'm like, I got this. So I grab the mic. I'm getting them all organized. It's about 300 students. It's a big lunch situation. Yeah. And they're coming in and uh, I'm getting them organized. So about four or five minutes go by. I got them. You know, make them laugh. Here we go. We're cooking now. We're building up. And, um, oh, man, I don't know how to describe what just happens next. <laughs> it's really <laughs> terrible um, for me. But um, there's a class of uh, uh, developmentally, um, how do you say this, developmentally um, delayed students okay. that walk in. And one of the kids that's developmentally delayed just immediately, before he even sits down, starts booing me. Just starts, oh no, boo, like that. And just everybody just pauses like this. And then he starts applauding himself. And I'm like, oh, he's entertaining himself, obviously. Right. And so I just, you know, I just, um, you know, he kept, every time I start talking, he start booing me again, boo, like that. I'm like, okay, nobody's talking to him. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> No. And I go, and I go. Who brought this guy? You know, just like uh, is a, you know, thought it was really funny. Nothing, yeah. nothing. Just yeah. like dead silence. And for for another like I don't know forty five plus minutes, I'm just relentlessly getting booed by this kid, and everyone oh is gosh. just. <laughs> Just relentless. And he's having a ball. He's having a ball. He's loving it. So I love it that he's loving it. And you know that it's like the funniest thing is to watch a comedian like die on stage. It's one of the funniest things ever. So I remember at one point I just hunched over and I started laughing so hard because I had this like out-of-body experience where I was watching myself die this miserable death on stage. <laughs> and I was just dying. I was laughing uncontrollably. Nobody knew why I was laughing. I was like, it's hilarious. You guys are, you guys suck. That's what it is. You guys are too immature and you guys suck to understand how hilarious this is. He's obviously, this is his fun time. Nobody ever takes him seriously, probably. And he's like, I'm going to a comedy show. This would be the funniest thing to witness at a comedy show. Is a comedian getting yeah. booed. I'm going to boo him. So he, I 100% believe this because he was laughing so much at booing me. And I was like, you know what? Go for it, buddy. Like, have a great time. Yeah. I don't care. So it was the worst set ever. I'm drenched. I'm, like, sweating the whole time. I get off stage. <laughs> I'm, I can't wait to get to this other show. Like, I can't wait to get to the 7 p.m. show. I'm like, I got to get this off of my, 
back at another school at another college. at another school and my college agent calls me up and he was like hey uh got this call from uh from that school you just wrapped up uh, they said you only did 52 minutes and i started oh and, I, and i started no i started yelling i'm like they're fucking should be happy i was up there for 52 oh minutes because you're supposed to do an hour yeah and you supposed did to do minutes. an hour i was like you know what you can have the fucking money and i was just so mad i'm like did he even tell you what happened do you even know what i went through there was no winning and i could see like every time i tell this story everybody tenses up you tensed up you're like i don't know where this is going you yeah, yeah, sure, sure. out like but that's what happened that's the worst yeah show i've ever had whenever people ask me for advice on on becoming a comic i always say they're, they're always like there's no stage time and i'm always like well you got to just perform wherever wherever anyone will let you perform even if it's bad that's the only way to become a great comedian like danny taught yeah. me this early on he goes you got to go do these one-nighters do them for as long as you can. Get your wings, you know, like the yeah. first seven years. It's like when you go out and do these like Ramada Inns and uh, yeah. Lanyap Music Cafes in Homa, Louisiana, or all these like hole in the walls. And there's these bookers that book like C.W. Kendall and Ken Muller, and they book all these uh, spots in the South and in, and throughout the Dakotas. I did all those, you know. And, yeah. and that's when you realize, oh, my hour is like 25 minutes, you know. Yeah. My, you know, I don't have an hour. Whoops. Okay, this is when you figure out how much time you actually have is when you go on the road and you realize this stinks. I've been getting, (laughs) you know, this is an awful joke. It's been getting laughs at a comedy club because it's a comedy club. And then you go in and real people in the Midwest like or middle America is just like, no, you know, this doesn't work here. And that's when you start learning how to write universally. And I and I yeah, that was it for me. I did those for like six years, maybe less. The uh, what's the strangest? Who's, who's the strangest neighbor you had growing up? Um, that's funny. These are great questions. <laughs> strangest neighbor. Uh, I'm not gonna say his name because he might have been in the mafia. I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but he was definitely the strangest neighbor I ever had. He was um, just a like Italian guy, just got out of prison. And and he was just like, yeah, it was just like he didn't fit in at all, you know, into Houston Ailey life. Just like he was like Fonzie all the time, his hair. Like he's <laughs> yeah, he's like in his fifties, you know, was in jail for 17 years and just like Wow. How'd you know he was in jail so long? Oh, he told me. He told me he was in jail. Oh, he yeah, would talk he, about he, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was talking about it for sure. And I was like, all right, <laughs> this uh Fantastic. Yeah, it was just a very odd guy. He taught me a trick shot in pool once I ran into him at a at a pool hall and he was like, Well, what are you doing here? I was like, Well, that's the last time I come here. And he uh he showed he showed me a pool trick that I'd never forgot. But uh very weird, very odd guy. I'm sure has crazy stories, but I never never really sat down with him long enough. What when you were growing up, like what when did you move to Houston? How old were you? I was nine. You were nine. nine years, so yeah. were there were there a lot of Palestinian immigrants who lived in your area? Absolutely not. This was like the only one it felt like. There was no, there was no other Arabs that I interacted with from then until like ninth grade is when I started running into other Arabs. It took like wow. five years. But at Houston, Aleph in particular, where I grew up, uh, the most diverse neighborhood in America, 
Houston is the most diverse neighborhood in America, sorry, city in America. And that neighborhood that I grew up in is 80 languages spoken alone. So it was very diverse, really, really diverse. And in, in 80, 80 languages? Yeah, 80 languages in A Leaf. No kidding. Alone. Yeah, yeah. That's why I wanted to film my show there. I'm like, it's it's a no brainer. It's the most diverse neighborhood I ever I've ever been a part of. But it's, yeah, it was just an incredible, it is an incredible neighborhood. Like Lizzo came out of yeah. there, Megan Thee Stallion, uh, Toby Nwegwi, a friend of mine who's an artist, uh, who's blowing up right now. Um, you know, Travis Scott's like down the street from there. I mean, like it just, wow. there's like a, there's something in the water here for sure. Um, and it was just always really fun and diverse and, and just like, it's a great neighborhood, man. And I have friends that I've made ever since I was in seventh grade that were still very close to this day. Eight of us that grew up together. Is, isn't Beyonce and Solange from Houston? Yeah, yeah, they're from say? they're from Third Ward. Yep. Okay. Third Ward. Even though that you know, Aleph still tries to claim them, but it's down the street. It's all very, very close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just so much. I mean, of course, before that, it was like Paul Wall, Bum B, uh, Slim yeah. Thug, uh, Lil Kiki, all these guys. You know that you know these songs. Wanna be a baller, shot caller, twenty. That's a Houston thing. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. I don't. I have a hard time. Uh, imagine you listening to that, to be honest with you, Mike. <laughs> Here's a couple of jokes that I'm working on because I work out new jokes on the show. Yeah. Just sort of kick them around. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I went for uh, acupuncture, which is an ancient healing art where they stick needles in your body until you go, forget it, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Have you gone for acu? Have you gone for acupuncture? I love these kind of jokes, man. I live for them. Yeah, I live for them. This guy goes to the psychiatrist. One of my favorite ones. This guy goes to the psychiatrist. He goes, "Hey, I'm having trouble making friends. You think you could help me, you fat fucking prick?" Oh my god, that's so funny. That's ridiculous. Is that just a street joke or is yeah, that your joke? No, it's not my joke. That's it's funny. one I heard from the old timers. They tell me so many. Well, you know, what's funny. What I try to do with these jokes, with short jokes, what I try to do with short jokes is ultimately I put them up in little note cards up on my wall, and then I I try to string them together with stories. So ultimately it's like joke, story, joke, story. Brilliant. So that, you know. But so a lot of these, when people are listening to the podcast, you know, they'll come see the final show and they'll be like, what about that joke? What about that? What about that? And it's like, well, it just didn't fit in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so funny. I like that. And then I have one about Pilates, which is, uh, I did Pilates, uh, I do Pilates, which is, you know, where you get on these torture devices and they teach you how to use them properly. And at one point, the instructor said, it's a true story, by the way, she goes, I want you to grab the, this strap and reach diagonal uh, like a Hitler salute. She said Hitler salute. And look, I know we live in polarizing times and no one can agree on anything. But I have to say that without a doubt, I do not believe in Pilates <laughs> or Hitler or Hitler, but also Pilates. And I feel I, I feel, but I feel bad judging her because she's European and there's a language barrier. But also, Europe didn't do that well in that war either. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so Listen, that's what I'm, I'm you got me a around. torture device. Torture device, good. Yeah, good. Like, I remember walking by one recently, like a Pilates. It was in Atlanta, and I look over and I just see all the Pilates equipment. I was like, "What is that?" It just when you yeah. see it by itself, not being used, it looks like some 
some weird sexual fantasy shit. Like, I don't it know. Does. It just looks so weird. I just can't. See, you got me at that. It's so funny. All right. And then I got this one. I thought of your bidet thing with this because you have this great run about bidets. But I go, one night I was driving home from a gig late at night and I had to go to the bathroom so badly I pulled over at a gas station and uh, and I'm exhausted and I sit down on the toilet and there's um, no seat on the toilet, which means I'm sitting inside the toilet. And I, I have washed my butt at least 1,000 times since this incident and I still don't think it's clean. <laughs> I don't think my butt will ever be the same again. I don't think so either. You still did it, though, which is... I couldn't see. It was, like, too dark. Oh. It was in a rush. <laughs> it was, like, this whole deal. <laughs> but you have this thing... You got to mention I that. I have to explain that. Yeah, I gotta explain you got to yeah, explain yeah. it because I'm like, yo, hold on a second. You still did it? You just, why did you still do it? Well, that's what the show... I mean, that's part of what the show is in a way. I don't know about you, but I bounce jokes off friends literally for the reason you're describing, which is, like... As the joke teller, the storyteller, there's an obvious piece of information often you're just not telling. Yes, that's huge. Look, you're, you're in a rush. You're sitting there. You're like, you know, it's dark. Uh, I sit down. Yeah. And then I realize yeah. there's, you know, mm-hmm. tea bag in the toilet. Not a good feeling. Oh, my God. It's a horrible <laughs> feeling. Yeah, I have a rule about this. I don't, I don't I only use handicap if I'm, like, you know, if I'm super... You know, pressed, and I'm traveling. I, don't, I have to be super pressed to use the bathroom. Otherwise, I won't. I need. Yeah. I need a hotel room. I need a bidet situation. I need to take a shower after. Like I need to. It's a whole. Wait thing. a minute. So you talk about this in this in the special. You have like a, a rant on bidets and how everyone should have a bidet and yeah. how we're doing. We're inadequately wiping, etc. And I agree with you. And I'm watching the thing. I'm going. I totally agree with you. But I also feel like that there that there there's a there's a plumbing quandary based on your recommendation, which is how could we possibly afford the infrastructure to bidet all of America? That's couldn't be further from the truth. 10 minutes, <laughs> you can install a bidet. 10 minutes in what? your existing infrastructure. Not like a separate bowl. We're not talking about like a separate okay. bowl okay. bidet. That's a whole situation. But they have okay. contraptions, many different kinds, that you can use today to wash your ass. Like you can do a handheld one, which I'm a fan of, more accurate, you know? And then there's okay. there's ones that sit right on your toilet and you can adjust to temperature, you can adjust water temperature, you can Oh, speed. so you're saying you can turn you you're saying you can turn your own personal toilet bowl into a bidet. Yes. Let me tell you something. I've been living in a hotel for the last three months and I purchased bidets <laughs> and had them installed in the in the hotel. No way. Yeah, of course. I'm not going to live my life. And then the hotel was like, we don't do that. I was like, you're damn, damn right you do. And I called up, I called up the, I told the. <laughs> that's, not how the that's not how the expression goes. They were like, no. I was like, no, you do. You definitely do. I just like, I just like oh, I'm going to deal with upper management. And I'm not going to do this. So I called and said my AC wasn't working. So the AC guy came up and I was like, listen, I need you to install these. Here's a hundred bucks. And he did it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, this is life changing. I'm doing this. Thank you. 
when people watch the special, I don't want to give away what happens at the end, but it takes like a really interesting turn, and uh, and you and you're and you. Uh, I'm not giving anything away go by saying no, go for it. You pray, you pray, yeah, and you lead a you lead a prayer. Yeah, I did. I didn't lead a prayer. I just called did the call to prayer. Yeah. Okay, the call to prayer. Yeah, the call to prayer. Yeah. And I'm I, when I was watching that, I was like, Do you are you how how consistent are you about praying five times a day? I'm not great at it, but I mean, I prayed today. I prayed two times today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Two times today. Yeah, I, wow. I prayed two times today. Like the mor- the morning is the one is like when I wake up. Now I because of filming the show, I just can't sleep past five AM. No matter what time I wake, you know, I go to sleep, I'll wake up like time to go, you know, and, and yeah. so like getting that in in the morning is crucial for me. It's a great meditation. And it's interesting, like, you know, it's um the way it was uh described for us, like, yo, this is this is praying five times today has been prescribed to you. It's like a medicine, right. you know? So I just feel like it's really interesting when uh, when people are like, oh, you pray five times a day. It only takes a few minutes to knock out a prayer. It doesn't take long. Right. Like literally, it takes like no more than five minutes max to, to pull out a prayer. And I remember right. one of my teachers um, who's a world-renowned theologian, and he was praying at, in, uh, at the airport, and someone tried to stop him. Someone's like, "Hey, yeah. you can't pray here." And he and he looked over and he goes, "I'm doing yoga," and <laughs> and they <laughs> and they go, "Oh, okay," and they let him be. Oh, that's funny. That's really funny. Which is so funny. To me. I'm doing yoga. <laughs> that but, should be that. That should be a bit. I think you could do that as a bit. A hundred percent. Hundred percent. Just that's a got a great turn. It's amazing that he said that. It was like just in that moment, he's like, "Oh, I'm doing yoga," and they were like, "Oh, that's perfectly okay." But like worshiping a divine exist like living a divine life like whoa whoa hold on a second you can't do that here <laughs> I, I this is a spoiler so people want to pause it and come back watch Muhammad in Texas and then come back it's a spoiler but there's a there's a point at which towards the end of the special you think the special is over and then you say I want to tell you this thing I was able to finally go back to Palestine after all these years leaving when I was a kid and you went you went to you know where your grandparents grew up, and 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 uh, you found out there's this amazing moment. You find out that your dad had built the PA system that they that it the was amazing. call. Yeah, yeah. And and what what I found to be particularly powerful about that moment in the special is that the whole special is a monologue, and then the final five minutes, it's intercut with footage of you in Palestine. And I was like, wow, that is really inventive. And, and emotional to go through something that's like a monologue the whole time and then all of a sudden it opens out into something that's visual. Yeah, it was, um, again, not intended. Uh, it was one of those things where they did the second show and it was really well, you know, it just went really well and the audience kept applauding, kept applauding, kept applauding and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back out there and I'll just tell this story because, you know, the... The set itself is the walls that are in Palestine. There's a Banksy on the side, and in the middle is the border wall. It's very, it's very, it's the border wall between Texas and Mexico. But the way I did it, it's like you couldn't really tell. It was just wow. I wanted, I didn't want it to be so in your face. It's just yeah. something that's yeah. I love you know, the set design. Yeah, and and I wanted the slogan, Houston slogan, where it says "Be someone," which is split up in two at the top, which has become a Houston thing. And uh, and I just like thought it was really powerful. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go tell the story. I probably won't have a better opportunity to do it. I'll just go back out there, give me a mic, and I went out and told the story. 
Um, it was all like unintended. And then, and then as we're editing, I was like, you know, I think I have footage of that story. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, no way. Yeah. And I was like looking for it, looking for it. And I couldn't find it. I was like, where the hell is this at? You know, I'm, I know it exists somewhere. And then I called my friend Andrea Kalin, who is an amazing, you know, Jewish woman that, that is a director, documentarian, been my friend for since 2006, love her and her family. And she, I was like, do you have any of this somewhere maybe with you? And she goes, I found three external hard drives that say Mo Nablus on them. I'm like, I think those are it. And it was like, I had like 24 hours to turn in the special, something crazy like that. I was like, could you please send it to me? I need to look through it. And then I looked through it and I started weeping. I was like, oh my God, I found the footage wow. of the first time that I went to Palestine because it was for me, it wasn't even I was born. I was born in Kuwait. I fled the war in Kuwait. I was never able to go back until I get my U.S. citizenship. Um, and so and so it was really powerful. And then I found it. I was like, oh, my God. So I asked the editor, I was like, can you intercut it between? And she did yeah. such an amazing job. And I looked at it because at first I got a lot of resistance about it. I don't know. How's it going to look? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, shut yeah. up. Just let me do my thing. Yeah. And it was the most classic thing where it's like the artist really knows what, what you know, what the outcome would be. Like it's hard to look into your mind and, and figure that out. But, yeah, it turned out, turned out amazing and um, super blessed that I, that I have that. And, and it became about my dad. You know, it was one of those things that unintentionally yeah. – the first one was it a was a you know a love story to my mom and, and my family, and the second special just turned out to be that way, and and uh, couldn't be happier. The final thing we do is working it out for a cause, and basically, if you have a nonprofit you're aware of that you think is doing a good job, I'll donate to them. I'll link to them in the show notes. Amazing uh, relief gang, they're here in Houston. Uh, it's by um, a well-known hip-hop artist from Houston called, his name is Trey The Truth. And Relief Gang is just exactly what you what you hear. It's like they offer relief uh, to underprivileged families. They, they, you know, for Christmas, for instance, they'll send toys everywhere. If there's a hurricane, they're there, they're present. They've rebuilt homes, uh, wow. people's lives, gotten them furniture, whatever they need to restart their life. And, and incredible organization run by an incredible guy, and Trey the Truth, and I and I support him and, and everything that he does in Houston. That's great, Mo. Well, well, it's uh, I will donate to them. I'll link to them in the show notes, and uh, hopefully I'll make it down to Houston. I would and, love that. And do some shows there, yeah. Come on, let me know when you're coming. I'll smoke some brisket for you. Oh, man, that'd be good. Oh, man, you don't I'd even know it. about this Arab and <laughs> learn all these, all these secrets from Redneck Scott. I got you. <laughs> Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no. That's gonna do it for another episode of Working It Out with Mo Ammer. Uh, I think you can get all the updates on Mo uh, at, at on Instagram, at real Mo Ammer. Again, it's at real, the word real, Mo, M O, and then uh, Ammer is A M. E-R. Yeah, you should watch his special, Muhammad in Texas. It's so funny. It's so, it's also just so fascinating. Um, couldn't recommend that more highly. Our producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia. 
Consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, sound recordist Parker Lyons, associate producer Mabel Lewis, and thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. They are exploding right now. They got a new album. They got a new tour. As always, a special thanks to my wife, the poet J-Hope Stein. Our book, The New One, is in your local bookstore, and you can follow her at on Instagram at at J-Hope Stein. She posts little poetry art pieces that I think are super cool. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created a radio for it. And thanks most of all to you who are listening. Uh, tell your friends. You know, reach out to some of your enemies from the past. Uh, <laughs> skim through your high school yearbooks and see who you had, had bad relationships with. And just go on Facebook and say, hey, you know, there's this podcast I really like. And don't do this. Don't, maybe don't do that. Uh, but you know where we'll be. We'll be right here. We'll be working it out. We'll see you next time, everybody.